0: So, it was a balmy summer's day. Of course it was. It's always a balmy summer's day. Always. And, um, and we had a visitor in the building. Oh, really? The Prime Minister was coming in. Wow. Yeah, Bob Hawke. Oh, Hawkey. Everyone's favourite PM. Hawkey was coming Did in. Did you
1: hide the beer?
0: <laughs> oh, every whiskey bottle was put into a safety cabinet that day. Now, the thing was, I was doing my usual thing of being important and walking around the building holding a piece of paper <laughs> in the hopes that I could casually bump into the Prime Minister and say, oh... Try to impress him with my intelligent skills. Yeah. And, of course, as I walked down the corridor towards the offices he was in, he was in Politically Motivated Violence. He's being briefed on terrorism. And uh, I was stopped by one of the great characters in the organisation. I shall just call this man Large Jack and let anybody who knows him figure out who I'm talking about. He stopped me and basically went, where do you think you're going? And I said, oh, I've got a very important piece of paper. No, you don't. No, I've really got to. No, you don't. I went... But he went, do you really think the Prime Minister wants to see you in stretch Fabergés and a pirate shirt and a bum bag? No. And I was booted. Now, jump forward to a couple of weeks ago where I'm sitting here at my computer doing what I always do, which is looking at stuff. And what do I discover? What? I discovered that Bob Hawke, the, the great Australian Prime Minister, might just have been working for the United States. Oh my gosh. And it's all recorded. Want to talk
1: about it? Of course I do. You're listening to I Spied, the Yard Glass of Australian Intelligence. <sighs> you all right there?
0: I'm gonna need to lie down.
1: Yeah. Hello and welcome to I Spied. My name's Michelle Stevenson. I'm here with David Callan. Um, who are you now? You're like a friend to me, I guess, or a colleague. Yeah.
0: a source. Fellow
1: hostage, locked in our homes. Yeah, locked
0: into our homes with school children that don't want to be here. They'd rather be with their mates. Um, I'd
1: actually rather talk to you than homeschool my child. That says a lot.
0: I've got an HSE student in the house. Yep, it's just hell. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, um, getting back to Hawkey. Uh, There's sitting around being locked up. I'm reading a lot of stupid stuff and I came across – an academic paper called The Eloquence of Robert J. Hawke, United States Informer, 73 to 79. Now, I this... love
1: that you just trawl for academic. <laughs>
0: i got nothing criminals. else to do. And essentially <laughs> this researcher, Cameron Coventry, has gone through all of these recently released archived diplomatic cables from the United States Embassy in Canberra, basically yeah. talking about how one of their greatest sources on the political situation in Australia, was Bob Hawke. Now, right. you, you kind of would have thought that, hang on, Hawkey, a lot of people saw Hawkey as being this sort of crypto-communist, militant, unionist crazy. But actually, yeah. the United States loved him. They absolutely adored him. Because-, because he was a larrikin.
1: He was the epitome of the Aussie larrikin. That loved to scull a beer. Uh
0: uh-huh. Held the world record for the yard glass.
1: Oh, of course he did.
0: But here's the thing. That very much belies his real character. Um, One of the things the Americans said they liked about him was the fact that he had this outward appearance of being a larrikin, of being a bit crazy and a bit of a bad boy. But Mm -hmm. actually, he was quite bookish. And he basically created this exterior character, this persona that the Australian people would embrace. But deep down, he was an incredibly powerful and incredibly smart operator. Alright.
1: I think what people have to remember as well, like you don't reach the highest office without having a bit of book smarts about you.
0: Not only that, you've also got to be incredibly pragmatic in your approach. Yeah. I mean, if you if you're stalwart, this is the way I am, and I won't change. People can't work with you. But Hawkey, they regarded him as a chameleon. They thought he was quite yep. like quite like this Janus face kind of guy that could be everything to everybody, which is so rare. And they really liked him because at the time that they were they were using him as a source or they purport to use him as a source 73 to 79 australia was regarded as a highly volatile place with the potential to completely fall off the map entirely, right? We just had one government, like after 23 years of conservative government, we got a very left-wing government takeover yeah. in Whitlam, and then what happened was Whitlam was sacked. We had a constitutional crisis, but the one thing we had that was going wrong from us was our economy, and America needed our economy to work. So yeah. Hawkey became perfect for this because he was a source on the labour movement and government, but most of all, what they really liked about him was they saw him as a potential leader and they wanted to sort of help him along. Really? Yeah, because he did a couple of things that they really liked. Like one of the things he did that they thought was brilliant was as the president of the ACTU, he was very much along the lines of going, we're not going to let the unions come completely out of control with wage fixing. They, they really wanted them to work to be more, how do we put it, to be more forgiving and accepting of wage setting. And what he did, essentially, they regard what he did with the unions in setting the accords in a way kind of undermined the Labor movement entirely, which was fabulous for them. And the other thing he did was he solved the problem of Frank Sinatra
1: what what was the problem with Frank Sinatra?
0: You don't know about the Frank Sinatra tour? No. The old Blue Eyes is Back tour, right? Okay. There was a Frank Sinatra, came down to Australia, and then got on stage in Melbourne and completely ripped the press apart. He basically talked about how they were scum and any female journalist was, and please, this is a, a no reflection on you or anyone of your ilk.
1: I'm about to get mad. They were whores. What?
0: Basically, all all female p- journalists were whores.
1: That is terrible.
0: That is what he said, particularly at a time in the, the mid-70s, which was very feminist. That was the feminist women movement.
1: empowerment. Women did not like being called whores, or if they did want to be called a whore, they called themselves a whore because they were owning their own sexuality.
0: Well said. I'm glad you yes. got that off the chest. Now, yeah. here's the thing, though. Yeah. The Americans thought the only person that's going to solve this is Hawke, and Whitlam thought the same thing, too, because, of course, as soon as he made his little comment on stage, the uh, union in control of theatrical lighting, staging, and sound went on strike. Really? So his show was shut down in Melbourne. Ah. So he just went, well, screw you. If I can't play here, I'll play in Sydney. So the transport union went on strike and refused to refuel his plane.
1: God, remember when unions actually did something? Yeah, I do.
0: <laughs> right, imagine imagine a theatrical union now going on strike. It was just, They just it wouldn't. Well, there weren't unions. There, there aren't those kind of unions really.
1: No. And, and we've got to remember that that's what Labor was based on. When we talk about Labor and the unions, a mm. lot of it was like this kind of groundswell of union movement. It's not, it's not the unions that we see today with the heavy-handed tactics in construction and stuff like that. This was like unions who were serving the people. Well, I'm going to pull you
0: up there on the heavy handed unions in construction. There was a little group called the BLF, the Builders Labourers Federation, back in the 70s and 80s, and they make the unions these days look kind of tame.
1: Ooh, maybe we should do a thing on unions. Ooh,
0: yeah, that's a great idea. Let's do that. Let's do a thing on unions. I'm just going to make a quick note in my book do an episode (laughs) on unions. Right. So, anyway, Hawkey, like Whitlam, turned around to Sinatra and the Americans and went. If you want anyone to fix this, get Bob Hawke. Now, the big story was Hawkey. I love this. Hawkey went into the Boulevard Hotel in Sydney, where Sinatra was staying, to have a meeting with Sinatra. And the story goes that there was a bottle of Cavassier brandy and a box of cigars on the table, and nothing else. Perfect. Right? And essentially. He never met with Sinatra. He met with Sinatra's lawyers, and the lawyers like to say that they basically plied him with brandy uh, because Hawkey was there for an apology. If this was going to be fixed, Sinatra had to make a public apology. Yeah. Well, Sinatra did not make a public apology. Hawk walked out of the Boulevard Hotel an hour later and read a prepared statement expressing Sinatra's regret at making the statement, right? So, no apology. <laughs> But regret. Right. But the big story was that Hawke was utterly legless and smashed during that negotiation. Now, a couple of problems with that. One, if he was legless and smashed, and look, we all know Hawky could put a beer away. Yeah, but you know, 100%. Half a bottle of crevassiere in an hour, that's going to put you pretty much on your ass.
1: Yeah, but, unless you're Russian.
0: Or you're Hawky because Hawky then or went out walking. and read a prepared statement to the press. Expressing Sinatra's regret. Now, if Sinatra was, exp- if he was, if Hawkey was pissed,
1: mm.
0: how in the name of God could he walk outside and make a prepared statement? right? So the Americans actually said that it was, Hawk was actually quite clever in how he handled it. Because he said, you know, he went in there, all guns blazing, we're going to need an apology and nothing short. But yeah. then, you know, and when the lawyers went, this isn't going to work, it was Hawke that basically turned around and went, look, express regret. I'll go out and read it. All hands fine. And look, how about by way of, saving everybody's, you know, saving face and also apologising to the Melbourne people who missed your show, why don't you let us broadcast one of your shows on free-to-air TV? Which is exactly what happened. Now, Sinatra went back to the United States after the tour was over, walked out onto Madison Square Garden and said, as he always did, old blue eyes is back, or as they say in Australia, old big mouth is back. So Sinatra actually kind of it it was it wasn't a bad thing for sinatra it was an excellent thing for hawk
1: well he kind of like got around it it's like one of those apologies a a non-apology so to speak exactly i'm sorry i hurt your feelings not i'm sorry that i said the thing that i said
0: yeah well what's a great line is you know i'm sorry if somebody was offended by what i said right uh not i'm sorry that I'm a complete tick.
1: I now, love the, a non-apology. A non-apology is my favourite kind of apology.
0: There are many of them around. We all like them. Um, yeah. I make them often to my wife.
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry now, you interpreted it like that.
0: <laughs> I'm sorry that you decided to marry me. But this was the thing with Hawke, right? Hawk had this ability to cut through a lot of problems. There was a, a, an instance where there was going to be an industrial action against northwest cape now that's one of america's big bases in australia alongside yeah. pine gap northwest cape is another one it's a it's a joint australian u.s facility now unions were going to attack it now it, they immediately turned around to hawk and went he was still at that point actu president and they basically mm. said can you fix it to which he did he had this uncanny ability to basically undermine any militant action, which belies the fact that everyone thought Hawkey was this mad socialist communist sort of militant. He wasn't. He no. was a- incredibly pragmatic.
1: So what, why would they think that he was a communist? It's so interesting just because, like, when by the time I knew a fork. I was a little bit older, and so yeah. he kind of had that kind of larrikin, lovable, sink a beer kind of thing about him. So yeah. I wasn't really part of that whole generation that thought he was a communist. Why did they think he was a communist?
0: Well, back in the sixties, he was very militant. He was right. a very militant labour movement member. But as he progressed, he realised if he is going to succeed, if he's going to you know, his career is going to move forward, he's yep. going to have to temper that. And he was very smart. He was very pro-US. The U- United States regard Bob Hawke as being the most pro-US prime minister in the history of Australia yeah. up to that point and possibly beyond. I mean, he was incredibly pro-US. He re- he understood how much Australia depended on America in the defence sphere, but yep. on the flip of that, he also wanted to take something like ANZUS and take it beyond defence. Right. So he wanted to shore up the alliance with Australia and the US, mainly because he knew that sitting directly above Australia is Asia and that's billions of people that we simply can't defend ourselves against. No. Right? So he was very shrewd.
1: And this was the whole era of Americanization, too, mm. like where most countries wanted to, well, a lot of the Western civilizations wanted to align themselves with America and all they had to offer.
0: Yeah. Most definitely. So Hawke was like a really solid asset for the United States. And um, yep. interesting enough, a lot of these cables have come from what was the US attache for Labour. Which was basically a CIA position. They regarded that as a if you were an attaché for Labor, you were most likely CIA. And the CIA did a lot of this. They promoted Bob Hawke into the International Labor Organization because they thought if anyone was going to temper the international Labor movement, it was someone like Bob Hawke. Right? Why,
1: why, why would they want to do that? It's interesting because labor i don't think of unions and labor unions much when i think about america and particularly america of today i think they mm. they recently they've you know the unions have really had a battle on their hands particularly with um amazon so yeah and i know that unionism is not a strong force in current american population well it's so not what, a very
0: strong force in a, the australian labor movement no, either no like, not at unions all unions have been so, weakened.
1: Yeah, so well, I'm interested to know why the CIA was quite quite for that.
0: Well, they regarded him as like they saw him as a potential leader. Yeah, where a lot of people in Australia weren't looking at Hawke, going, "Gee, he could be prime minister." No. The Americans were. They really right. saw him as a, a, a national leader. Um, he was, and he was really effective in juggling like the holy trinity of society, which is Labor, capital and government. So the Labor movement, businesses and government, he had a way of finessing it. I mean, yeah. the Accords are a great example of how he did that. He actually managed the unions, managed to get the unions to pull back from higher wage claims. And in, in doing that, he undermined the Labor movement. I mean, that is the beginning of the erosion of of Labor membership and union membership in Australia. He essentially de-radicalized it. He deradicalized labour in Australia, the labour movement, like not labour the party, yeah, but labour the movement, but in doing that, that deradicalised the party as well. He undermined the anti-uranium movement in Australia by dividing unions by playing one union off the other. so the anti-uranium mining movement just dwindled to nothing. Now we export uranium because he knew that that was a something that Australia could sell to a number of countries and make money out of it.
1: Yeah, but I do think it's in some of this we have well he has kind of kind of we lost out a little bit in a lot of these movements I think because like we talk about uranium and you know exporting it but we look at what it's done it's got a, a huge amount of people rich. Not Ooh, yeah. the Australian government. We're mm-hmm. not particularly rich off it. The taxpayers nope. aren't particularly rich off it. Nope. So I think by dwindling or kind of watering down that union movement, it kind of, yes, it facilitated a lot of trade, but also we might have lost out on a few things.
0: Oh, most definitely. I mean, that's one of the interesting things. But again, Hawke, being a pragmatist, was like, yeah. going, what is best? Serving this country, there was a passage on macroeconomics in this that essentially I just started reading and went, "Yeah, no, I can't. I no, I can't follow this. It's very complicated and very like heavy economic theory, which I don't have. But the thing with Hawke was, Hawke got stuff done, and that's what the Americans liked about him. It was he was not only was he a great source." Um, he was quite happy. there was a a moment where there was going to be an industrial action taken against the Ford Motor Company in Australia. Hawke let the Americans know, the Americans are able to let Ford know, and Ford were able to cut it off at the pass. They were able to actually stop it by not so much giving in to what the union demanded, but giving them ground.
1: it makes It makes sense to me because you know Hawke had Keating with him, and like the whole Hawke Keating, Government, you know, they they claimed numerous economic like modernisation, inter- yeah. internationalisation. Like they were a big driving force. That that duo was a big driving force in really pushing our economy into the international arena. Oh yeah, so the economic it makes, reforms. It, it are makes huge. sense to me that Hawke had had a fair idea about economics and a, and a grasp of the economics as well. I mean, the smartest thing he ever did, and I know that those two had a massive clash, was you know, align himself with Keating.
0: Yeah. Right. Again, that's the guy. He's a guy who's basically gone, I may not like you personally, but I understand your talent and I'm willing to yeah. use it. Yeah. Now, interestingly enough, if you look at it, if you were to look at this through the prism of the foreign interference transparency scheme, which is the new legislation that's just come through to sort of monitor this sort of. Behavior within Parliament. Now, before we go any further, these cables are from 1973 to 1979. Hawke was not in Parliament at that point. He was a union leader. He wasn't a parliamentarian, right? Okay. He then, once he got into Parliament... I don't think – well, he wouldn't have severed all that contact. It just would have been gone through government relationships, well, at least political, and then once he was in government, government relationships. Once you're a prime minister, you have a little bit more sway and say over who you talk to. But you've got the foreign interference transparency scheme that was introduced recently by the Australian government to try and curtail this kind of influence. Right now, admittedly, a lot of it's directed towards Chinese influence. Yeah. Like – foreign, like foreign adversarial government influence as opposed to foreign allied government influence. But still, foreign influence is foreign influence. And yeah. certainly what Hawke was doing was working with a foreign government at the, uh, and at the behest of that government.
1: It's kind of like the uh, Facebook Russian equivalent. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Bottom line.
1: It was like Facebook and Russia got together and just decided to get Trump elected.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Now, how much that would have made a difference, how much his relationship with the United States would have worked as a, an electoral strategy or how much the Americans influenced that his election. I mean, mm. the Fraser government was on the nose and they were struggling economically. And Hawke, with Keating, came in and literally reinvented our economy. We went from being the sheep's back, admittedly, yeah to the coal sack. So um, there was that change, but they just revamped the economy and away we went.
1: Well, and, and we still talk about it to this day, I mean, how great that duo in government was and mm. what it did for us economically and not only like just also the perception, the way we were perceived. We weren't, We went from being this backwards country to a country of economic growth and prosperity yep. and kind of a force to be reckoned with on the international stage and that kind of set that up for it.
0: They certainly did because with Whitlam, Whitlam was already to – like he was straining the relationship between Australia and the U.S. dramatically, right? The whole thing pulling out of the Vietnam War without yeah. talking to America about it. All these sort of things were happening. Hawke was the one that mollified all of this. He was the one who – and he was staunchly U.S. supporting. He loved the United States. And, you know, here we sit, 2021 – Admittedly, we're sitting in our homes, not doing anything because we're locked in. But <laughs> here we sit with a, a nation that's very different to what Hawke inherited from the Fraser government.
1: 100%. And, so, but, so he was ASIO across this, do you think, about this kind of... Would they consider this a, a foreign, foreign interference if, like, the American government was supportive of a Labor leader?
0: Well, there is that thing you could you could well, a, a labor leader, gee, that's a really funny one. See, if it was the Russians, yeah, if, was, if he was sharing stuff with the Russians, yeah, we got problems. That's going to be yeah, a big right. problem. But I mean, I do remember when I discovered that uh, a guy I was doing one of my amateur theatrics with was a member of British intelligence. I discovered that this guy was a member of British intelligence, and I was like, "Do I have to like quit the show and not talk to this guy ever I, again?" I,
1: I, lo- I love that there was like a hotbed of, <laughs> spies. of international spies who were masquerading as actors. Oh, or In yeah. your case, or in your case, an actor masquerading as a as spy. a spy.
0: <laughs> uh, thank you very much. Uh, no, and the thing, the first thing in uh, the internal security guy said to me was, yeah. "Look, um, he's on our side, so let's not worry about it." We don't think it's a problem, right? As long as you don't tell him anything, it's not a problem. Yeah. So with Hawk informing, or at least a- acting as a source for the US, I don't think ASIO would have really worried about it. Um, simply, I think they probably would have been a little confused by it, to be perfectly yeah. honest. Because back in the early seventies, late sixties, early seventies, they were staunchly anti-left. And that was that was Brigadier Spry. They they were still chasing communists, the the Reds under the bed. That was still going on, and you know ASIO went through a transformative process during the Whitlam and then Fraser governments and into Hawke. So when I got there, like Hawke was already the prime minister, and ASIO had had substantial changes made to it. So concern, curiosity, yes, concern maybe a little, but I don't it- think they would have seen it as a danger.
1: Because when you think about it now, if this was happening right now,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I would expect that ASIO would be a little bit more trepidatious about it. There'd be a little bit more of pause for concern.
0: Well, that goes back to the foreign interference transparency scheme. Right. Is ASIO had been like warning the government for a long time that there are a lot of foreign actors. and. At the moment, they regard foreign interference as being off the charts compared to earlier periods. I mean, you've got Chinese influence, you've got Korean, you've got Russian, you've, there's a lot of influential, external influences coming into Australian politics. Interestingly enough, the Sam Dastiari scandal, where he accepted, I think it was flights, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, something like that.
0: From a Chinese businessman, and then after accepting the flights, he got up and spruced the Chinese policy of the South China Sea, which is like just dumb, really dumb. But today that would not actually register on the foreign interference because the businessman is a permanent resident in Australia and because he's a permanent resident, he's not regarded as a foreign influence. He's regarded as a local one. So that would just be regarded as lobbying. Still, you know, why spruik that, Sam? Mate, just bad call, bad call.
1: Well, I mean, now he's a world famous podcaster. So, you know, it really worked for him. Not world famous, I'm joking. <laughs> really? I mean, he lost his political career, but now he's, I mean, what's he doing? He's tweeting and podcasting. He did a
0: pilot Um, on 10 a couple of years back.
1: (laughs) So it it really doesn't behoove anyone to kind of take flights and then spruik something that goes China's way. No. This is all very interesting stuff, and I think you've really shone a light on a portion of Australian politics that probably no one knows anything about, which is kind of a gift that you have to find this, like, something that no one knows anything about and delve into the minutia of it. It's a real thing.
0: I just look up the most ridiculous trivia and away I go. But the thing about it is, this is what I found fascinating when I read okay. this was I was shocked because I do remember there was a point where Hawke had threatened to shut down Pine Gap. He turned around and the Americans said, I'm going to shut it down. So the Americans went, come and have a look at what we're doing. Yeah. And Hawke walked out of there ashen. He was whiter than his hair. Right, the mm-hmm. silver bodgie was really, really taken aback, and he went, "Yeah, no, nah, look, forget it, bye," and walked away, just walked away from the entire issue. Now, through the prism of these cables, that would have more likely been him going, "All right, guys, I'm going to say this, just fair warning, I'm going to make you know beat my chest, make a brouhaha, yeah. and then you're going to give me a reason not to." Everyone good with that? Yep. So it looks great to the electorate, and then when he walks out, ash and face going having seen what they're doing here, I think it's valuable that we maintain this facility. It makes everyone go, oh my God, what has he seen? What And he literally diffused the entire issue. And that was his real gift for the United States was his ability to go, you've got a problem coming up. If we do it my way, we can solve your problem and my problem in one fell swoop.
1: Yeah, and I think that's kind of an issue that we have now with China. The government is not seeing both sides. Yes, there are human rights atrocities, that is no doubt. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, what's important to the majority of Australians is trade and how we survive economically. Now, I think what a lot of governments and government ministers, their mistake at the moment is not being able to see the bigger picture. They they think they can take a stand on something and China's going to be okay with that. Yeah. So it feels to me like what Hawke had done is he'd seen the bigger picture and he knew that sometimes you just got to take one for the team or just, you know, bite your tongue, so to speak.
0: Exactly. I mean, and and the whole thing is, as you said, you're absolutely right. With China, the human rights abuses are dreadful. But every time Australia turns around and says, excuse me, human rights abuses, the Chinese like to turn around and go, what about that family on Christmas Island and those guys that are still living in Nauru in tents?
1: (laughs) And Ah! also... And also they're like, oh, we don't want your wine and we don't want your seafood and we don't want all the things that people make actual money out of.
0: Yeah, but we'll take your coal and your steel. Yeah. Well, actually, they've stopped the coal, but they're still taking the steel, really, simply because you can't get steel any cheaper than you can in Australia because we're just one big flat iron pan, basically. So, look, I don't want to shadow anyone's illusions. I actually still think Bob Hawke is a brilliant – he was a brilliant politician.
1: Oh, this has made me like him even more.
0: Yeah, he's a brilliant strategist. And the fact that he actually was able to turn around to the Americans and go, I'm the guy you want to have, that to me is really appealing. I love it.
1: I love it too. I mean, I don't necessarily love that image of him in his budgie smugglers.
0: No, no one does. No. You know what? I'm going to crack a beer for
1: him. (laughs) (laughs) Day drinking. Uh, That's a lockdown. (laughs)